opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. I survived another holiday and had a wonderful time with family and friends and always happy to be back in the studio. Uh, Quick note, if you're listening and you'd like to join our conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to call 888-329-3306. And you can always pick up the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. So I'm in the studio and thrilled to have uh, two Dynamo people with me. One is our weekly um, contributor and sponsor, Dr. Beth Dupree. She's joining us from the hospital. And our guest this afternoon is Will Murray. Will is the co-founder and former president of the Covey Leadership Center. He's founder of the Smart Power Institute and a sought-after speaker and advisor to corporations such as Johnson & Johnson, GE, Nike, and Gap, uh, just to name a few. So, um, Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. I'm glad to be with you. And I'm thrilled to have you as a first. You're the first solo male interviewee here. It's a lot of pressure, Susan. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. I'll make it easy for you. Um, you know, you and I connected, uh, I guess, over a year ago, and um, we, we've had some conversations and correspondence back and forth, and I have so many uh, great questions to, to ask you and get your feedback on, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as you know, we, we try to really start at the beginning with our guests, and I wanted to start off the show with a quote from one of your colleagues that I think really sums up you and, and describes who you are. Um, he said, Will Murray personifies these traits, loving, ethical, creative, transformational, visionary, caring, in the forefront, honest entrepreneur, and truly patriotic. I think if if that was um, a way that someone described me, I would be uh, very, very happy. Well, you have no idea how much I had to pay him to write that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, if if you take each one of those traits individually, um, it's it's a really wonderful testament to you and the work that you've done. And what I want to find out is how you um, – came to be that person, that man, and and really what shaped you. So I wonder if you can just talk for a few minutes about your background and your growing up years. Well, thank you for asking. I I am, you know, in that way I'm probably the luckiest, one of the luckiest people on earth um, in that uh, I have this really great origin story. My great-grandfather coming from Italy in the 1850s all alone when he was 14 years old to escape being conscripted into Napoleon III's army and, um, and and kind of living the American dream, but, but going through tremendous obstacles and hardships and life-threatening situations. So um, I, I grew up on a ranch that he eventually formed, and, 
and uh, my my father was kind of a John Wayne character, and my mother was an exceptionally strong, um, just strong, loving, powerful, respectful woman. I I can hardly talk about it without <laughs> getting emotional. So. Both the influence of my mother and father were very strong on me, but I grew up being a little cowboy. Fortunately, the the ranch was uh, near the coast in Central California, and I also grew up being a surfer. So I was one of the first surfer cowboys uh, of my era, I'm sure. And <laughs> did you wear the cowboy hat when you were surfing? I did not, but I sure wrote it. I have a picture of myself five years old on a on an old mare called Mary, and uh, I rode the range and. Live the life, because back then being a cowboy was really uh, something romantic. Yeah. I love that. Um, I wonder if you can, so, you know, when you talk about your mom, that she really um, was a great influence in your life. I wonder if there's something, you know, one piece of advice or something that she used to say to you regularly that has stuck with you. Well, I, I think the the main thing is my mom... Um, is an interesting woman. She grew up in Beverly Hills, and her father was an entrepreneur. He started with nothing. He was a truck driver, and it ended up being very successful, having one of the largest truck uh, trucking companies in the country. And um, I have a great story about her in that, um, and this epitomizes my mother. She was raised in. A, she was a debutante. She had white gloves. She had calling cards. She was raised in an era of. Um, high role um, definition, and um, she had this quality of being both nurture, nurturing and strong at the same time. So here's my little story. When she was about 22, she was riding in a car with a friend, and they got smacked at, a, at an intersection by a car behind and, and smashed the car enough that they stopped and walked around. My mother walked around to see who was driving the the car that hit her and the window rolled down and lo and behold i wish i could imitate but it was carrie grant oh my goodness and oh carrie goodness. grant said to my mother hello darling i mean that's how she describes it and he said don't worry about a thing uh my you know my assistant will take care of the car and he gave her uh, a calling card a business card with his assistant's name on it well um, they got the car repaired, and back then you could repair a car like that for about $200. That was about the damage. And they sent um, a carbon copy of the invoice and a, and a request for the payment to send to her girlfriend's address. And uh, no, no payment came. So my mother found out where Cary Grant lived, which was at the beach with Rod Taylor down in Santa Monica. So one Sunday morning, she told her friend they're most likely to be home Sunday morning because they'll be, you know, recovering from a night of frivolity. <laughs> and at 10 o'clock in the morning in Santa Monica, she knocked on Cary Grant's door. And he came to the door, and of course he was wearing a white terry cloth robe. And he saw my mother, who's obviously, you know, I'm her son, but she was quite beautiful. And, um, <laughs> excuse me. Her friend, and he invited her in, invited them in again using his Cary uh, Grant voice and charm. And my mother just stood there and said, "That won't be necessary, but we do accept cash and payment for this." 
So he said, wait a minute, and he came back with $200 in cash. And it, it's kind of, um, so that so she grew up in that atmosphere, and then she moved to this ranch near San Luis Obispo, California, which at the time had about 8,000 people. And she'd never cooked a meal in her life, by the way. She was 25 years old. I, I don't know if she'd ever really cleaned her bedroom. And I grew up with my mother helping my dad fix watering troughs, um, doing, my mother ironed our bed sheets. I mean, she did all the work that, uh, let's say we had no servants. We had cowboys that helped with um, things on the ranch. But, and uh, my mother moved from the kind of the center of the universe to this little tiny town. And um, she, she was accepted by, I don't know how to explain this. She had this dignity and this grace and this beauty and made everybody feel comfortable. And people would always come to her and ask her what the right thing to do in a social circumstance or in a relationship problem or anything else. So she was, um, she was powerful without trying to be powerful. That's all I can say. She had such dignity and grace and openness. Uh, just one more thing. I, I grew up as a surfer in the 60s, and surfers in the 60s were kind of uh, characters. And I had friends who, uh, frankly, dealt in illegal marijuana and were not, you know, they weren't pillars of the community. They certainly weren't the kind of people that one's mother would feel really comfortable around. But when they came to the house, she treated them like they were candidates to be Rhodes Scholars. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> So, you know what, Well, it sounds to me like she was not only quietly powerful, but someone who was accepting of just about anyone and, and, and saw their gifts. Well, you know, she, let me say this. She had ins- insanely high standards and no judgment of others. Right, no judgment, right. And uh, she was president of the Mother's Club of our parochial school that I went to years and years and years and, you know. She was a, a leader as well. So anyway, I can't say enough about my mother. Yeah. Well, that you know what? That sums it up. And um, obviously was a, a very, very um, important piece of your, your childhood. And I would say why you have such great respect for women today and have decided to, you know, um, advocate for women and do it in the work that you're doing, you know, in leadership. Um, I, w- I wanted to talk about the uh, research project that you were involved with. Um, it was called 21 Companies for the 21st Century. And, right. Yeah, and it revealed some really uh, very important insights, I think, when we talk about leadership today and what we're lacking and, and what we need. And I thought I'd just kind of go through a couple of those insights and ask you about them. Um, sure. One of them was that um, – you know, we need a fundamentally different business strategy today, different from um, the business st- strategy of the 20th century. And I wanted to know in what ways do you think um, those differences should be? Well, fundamentally, everything has changed. So uh, John Chambers, who's now the executive chairman of Cisco, just stepped down as CEO, said 40% of the companies that exists today will not exist in their same form or not exist at all within 10 years. And what he was, what he was really saying is that the digital revolution has changed everything so fast and made everything so volatile 
that you, you, you were in a situation where the largest transportation company in the world doesn't own a car or a truck. It's called Uber. And the largest um, hospitality company doesn't own a single hotel room in their Airbnb. So these are real changes, and they're happening at a massive scale very quickly. And fundamentally what's happened is that the infrastructure of old business was all hierarchical. And a hierarchical infrastructure is very male. So there are great rewards and hierarchies for competitiveness, um, decisiveness. Uh, the, the rewards are, are status, power, and money as primary rewards. And those kinds of structures create business silos which destroy organizational agility and, and actually destroy positive innovation and create what I call negative innovations. And I can tell you about that if you're interested. But um, so the 21 companies for the 21st century operate on a different level. And, and primarily what they do is, is they operate as um, hives of interconnected teams. And what's needed to make interconnected teams work well are the kind of, there's four intelligences that women really excel at. And uh, work done at MIT, it's something called a group uh, intelligence lab, has really identified uh, the kinds of intelligences that are, are really necessary to thrive in today's economy. And, and women just naturally exhibit that more than men, and part of it is due to their brain design, and part of it is due to how they're socialized. Okay, so that's, you know, what are those four qualities? You, you're going to ask me that? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be the logical so, next question? <laughs> yes, but the payoff, they're called CORE, so C-R-C-O-R-E. Uh, right. So the first one is called contextual intelligence. So contextual intelligence means there's a wa awareness of the context in which you're operating that is much bigger than, let's say, an immediate goal. So in, in research done by another uh, company I work with called Zanger Folkman, who's uh, done tens and tens of thousands of people using 360-degree surveys, this is what they find, is that when men typically – now, I'm going to talk in generalities. Yes. So I'm going to – when I say men, I mean the, the research really says there's about two-thirds of men that are what are called hard-power men. So they tend to think very linearly and very in a very compartmentalized way, and they're highly competitive. So about two-thirds of men, and they're very task-oriented. And then when I say women, what I'm going to say is the research says about 85% of women tend to be soft-power women. And soft-power women tend to have these four competencies, and the first one being contextual intelligence. And so let me tell you what the value of that is. In um, studies with control groups and regular groups, uh, in, uh, uh, particularly of engineering projects, what they would do is ask uh, male managers to estimate the time and resources needed to do, let's say, a software development project. And then they would ask women engineers or women managers to do the same, the identical project. And invariably, women would talk about more time uh, more people, and frequently more resources. And so if you're a leader in a hierarchical company 
and you ask two people to do a job, and one says, oh, I can do it in two weeks with four people, and, I, you know, I, I need $50,000. And then if you ask another person, another manager, and they would say, oh, that's going to take eight weeks, I'll need, you know, take at least 12 people, and we'll need $100,000, who are you going to choose? Right? Yeah. You're going right. to choose the person that, that says, I can do it fast and, and quick. Mm-hmm. Now, what the research says, though, is those people are almost always wrong. And what happens is there's a constant, so that you start a, a cycle of rework and uh, fixes or fire drills and so forth. And what it really means is, is that linear thinkers, which the male brain is really set up for linear thinking, that's I'm, I'm going to look at two, uh, one cause and one effect at a time. I'm not going to look at interconnections very carefully. So what that means is, is uh, and then if you add overconfidence and aggression, which are, are common male traits, what, what happens is linear thinkers tend to discount unintended effects or who else needs to be involved or who else might have vital information or how often we need to talk to the customer to get uh, better data on what the customer really wants as it emerges or something of that nature. So they underestimate the time uh, of, uh, I, well, the time that you use in creating a greater base of information to do really good work, which is a, a social intelligence skill. And they, so they minimize that and are ju- they're just thinking about coding or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out contextual intelligence is true in almost anything. So the idea, like today, regardless of your political um, affiliations, it's likely that Hillary Clinton, I don't know her, has a better idea of the complexity of the world stage and all the things that are going in than a Donald Trump would be. Donald Trump is, exhibits classic uh, male thinking, obviously. So that tends to be really simplistic. So the idea that we're just going to let's go bomb a bunch of people and our problems will be over is a, is a hard power uh, solution. So what it, what it shows is low contextual intelligence. I don't have a need to know a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I can just do it. So number one, women naturally have more contextual intelligence. Just, just to bring this down to an easy level, you just had, went through a holiday period. Or we're in a holiday period now. And so a lot of family comes over. And so my wife is always telling me, well, make sure you say this to Aunt Martha and say this to, uh, you know, ask, uh, uh, you know, George about her new girlfriend, his new girlfriend and so on. She's, she's got all these relationship things in her head mm-hmm. that will help create social glue. And I'm just like, wow, that's an ugly sweater. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking more linearly and I'm not thinking about all these contextual issues. So that's why men don't want to be given instructions when they drive, et cetera. So uh, C is contextual intelligence. The, the second um, one is operational intelligence. And, you know, it's really funny. You'd think that male and linear thinking would be really good for execution, but operational intelligence is just as important as contextual intelligence when you're getting work done. So uh, what operational intelligence means is I know what it takes to deliver, let's say, great customer service. And again, why women have more operational intelligence is that they realize that managing people and um, processes is complicated, and there's lots of moving parts. 
The third one is relational intelligence, and you can just imagine what that is. But women are better at understand better social radar. They, they have their brains are designed to receive more social inputs. They weigh those social inputs, and um, and come you know and identify needs and so on. So it's a combination of of um, of empathy and uh, understanding social cues. So it's social sophistication and relational intelligence. Mm -hmm. And then finally, emotional intelligence is self-knowledge. So self-knowledge is really knowing, of course, how you think, how you feel, and how you perceive you're coming across. So um, if I were to leave a, a dinner party and, you know, my wife says to me, gosh, you were, you were really strong. I don't think you should have brought up that politics stuff. You were really strong and they were I, I think you made people uncomfortable, and I, I'd be saying, no, I came across really smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because the little voice inside me is not really uh, uh, at, at the same level of emotional intelligence as my wife, and she's much more aware of maybe how she's coming across than I am, if I can counteract her, um, her worry. And, now, on the downside... Of, of these things is that women tend to worry a lot more and they tend to second guess, guess themselves a lot more. So there's, there's upsides and downsides to everything. Yeah. It's really, it's fascinating. You, I, I'm fascinated by, by this topic. And I, I do think that, you know, one of the biggest issues is always that ability of women to kind of, um, feel the, you know, notice the social cues and, and men aren't really seeing or noticing that. I think that has a big effect um, because that's communication. And, and if, you, if you're if you not sensing those um, social cues, perhaps you're not responding in, you know, the appropriate way. But, again, that's just a small, small piece. Um, one of the things, Will, that you have said and, and mentioned to me is that you think what women really need to do um, as far as, um, you know, moving up the ladder and becoming leaders in their own organizations is they need to step up, not lean in. You know, we talk often about Sheryl Sandberg's right. book and, and leaning in. It's a, you know, it's something that's said regularly now um, with regard to this topic. What do you mean by that? They need to step up, not lean in. What's the difference? Well, I, I've been doing this since the early 80s with Stephen Covey. So, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And I would say organizational work is more toxic today than ever in the 30 years I've been doing it. And people are chronically overworked and feel exploited, unheard, undervalued. It's very frustrating. It's hard to get good work done in most large organizations, uh, mostly because they're not designed to be agile enough to produce uh, great things. So... Um, because it's difficult to get growth, the last 20 years has been spent trying to take the cost out of business. So the easiest way to take cost is reduce headcount. And what they found in reducing headcount is people's willingness to do more work to keep their job is, is almost endless. So, um, you know, the average uh, American worker works 47 hours a week, and I'll, I'll tell you at a management or higher level, it's higher than that. So it's at the executive level, uh, most people that I know are involved with work seven days a week. Well, that wasn't true 20 years ago. I don't know that it was that true 10 years ago, but it's pretty commonplace today. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you're leaning in to a toxic system, what is that going to do to you, Susan? 
Well, it's going to put more pressure. You know, well, you're... it's going to poison you. Right. So you don't want to lean in. You want to change the system. So here's one of the biggest problems that I, I talk about all the time. Most orga- hierarchical organizations reward people who are competitive and primarily, primarily motivated by status and control. And they will do the things that are necessary to, to go in an organization. And if you were to ask a, a group of, let's say, a vice president or director level uh, people, and there's men and women in an audience at any company I've ever been to, you say, how many of you would love to be in the C-suite or CEO? You would get, if, if you were um, vice president above for sure, you would get about 90% of men and never more than 50% of women. Mm-hmm. Never more than that. And um, what, one of the reasons is that women look at what is necessary to achieve at that level, and they don't want to make that trade-off. Now, if you really look at what's necessary to achieve, nobody should want be wanting to make that trade-off. And that trade-off is going deeper and deeper in, into the organization so that, you know, working at night and being on conference calls at night and answering emails at night are now normal. So the you know, and there's a big blurring of of uh, work, and you know they call it work-life integration mm-hmm. instead of work-life balance. Those are just buzzwords for a toxic environment. Work should not dominate seven days a week of your life or six days a week of your life. It shouldn't dominate your evenings. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy from a stress standpoint. It's unhealthy from a relation standpoint. It's unhealthy from a life satisfaction standpoint. And there's plenty of research to to do that. And we. We, you know, it's mythological that we're more productive. We're the eighth on, a, on productivity per hour. Most people don't realize that workers in France are more productive than Americans. They don't work as many hours, so we actually can get a little more done. But at the cost of it is huge because our productivity, our brain gets tired after about four and a half hours of hard work. And it gets very tired after about 6.3 hours of hard work. And, and again, that's research that you can find on the Bureau of um, uh, Labor Statistics. And, and so what happens is every hour we put in every day of work after about six hours, the marginal positive impact of that is going down, down, down. So why would you want to lean in to a system that just exploits and uses people up? I, I don't know. It's a great question. I, it's a great question. You know, I, so we've I, got to change that. Right. And the only way we're going to change that is we have to have women who lead like women. I just want to make this point. In most organizations, because uh, you will find women at the top are mimicking men. So they're Margaret Thatcher's, the most admired woman leader in the world, in the business world. This is a uh, Pricewaterhouse called PwC now, 2014 research. The most admired woman leader that they come up with is Margaret Thatcher. Well, give me a break. So um, if, and and lots of male leaders of organizations, you know, people say, why do you, why do women listen to you? You're a man. Well, it's because I know what men are saying when women aren't in the room, male leaders. And what men are saying is we have, there's no bias here. We'll bring women to leadership. They just need to act like us. Well, acting like you has brought us what we've got, and what we've got isn't working. What we've got is bad. It's worse than it was. So how's that for a passion? 
Yeah, well, I can hear it. I, I know you're passionate about this topic. Um, I, I guess the next logical question then is how do women who are not, um, you know, senior leaders or not in the C-suite, how can they um, help to change the vision and direction of organizations? Well, I'll give you a great example. So I, I run this thing called the Leadership Spa, which is a two-and-a-half-day leadership program for women. And the last one I ran, um, there was a woman from Qualcomm, the you know the large chip maker, puts chips in cell phones. And um, her name is Carrie, and Carrie is a, a quality control from a user standpoint. So she goes out to not individuals but companies and um, looks at how their what their experience is with a Qualcomm's product. So she was on a team but not a leader. Uh, and she decided, so the first thing I, I say in this is you have to have a goal. You need to have, let me put it this way, women are socialized to help other people achieve their goals. If you just think of a nurturing mother, uh, that kind of concept being passed on through hundreds of generations, women are socialized to help others achieve their goals. Men are socialized to stand out and have goals. So when you walk into most organizations, what you see at the management level is lots of women. And what you see at the senior leadership level are lots of men or a few women acting like men. So the first thing I say to somebody like Carrie is you have to have a clear goal. You have to be clear on what difference do you want to make. Now, her difference She's an African-American woman, by the way. Her difference is that she wants to bring a lot more diverse, ethnically diverse people, primarily, and gender diverse people into technology because technology companies are, are very sexist cultures. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but they have a very hard time hanging on to their even their women engineers um, because many the, the real attrition rate in technology companies is when uh, professional women – reach uh, about 35 to 45. That's when they start leaving. So they can recruit them. They just can't keep them. So um, what Carrie wanted to do was bring more women in, into her company and, uh, and, and obviously more ethnic diversity. So she, what, um, there's this training that's going on in the organization called design thinking. And design thinking is all about how to come up with uh, – better, more implementable ideas uh, often for product by using many iterations, so fast learning, so fail fast, learn fast, so forth. So she came up with a project. She was getting certified in this, and she came up with a project, and the project was how the company could recruit specifically uh, a more diverse workforce. So she put, she decided that this is how she really wanted to make her difference in this past year. And so she came up with a very thorough, well thought out, well supported program and presented it to the person who was in charge of diversity and inclusion at her company. And she was very impressed. So that person, not Carrie, but that person took it up to the worldwide HR leader, the chief HR leader of the company. And she thought it was marvelous and fantastic, and so they've adopted it. So you, you have a company with um, tens of thousands of employees, somewhere between thirty and 50,000 employees, 
who's adopted uh, for 2016 a new recruiting protocol designed to get more uh, women and, and people of diversity into the organization and onboard them in a sensitive way and so forth. And that's an example of leadership right where you are mm, right. with no authority, no power, just a great idea. But what I tell women is you have to have an agenda. If you live your life primarily uh, looking to help other people achieve your goals, their goals, it's going to be very hard to feel what the research says is happy and satisfied. So um, that's the first thing. What's the difference you want to make? Yeah. And you don't have to become CEO to make that difference. That's a big point I make. That's right. That's right. Listen, well, we're going to take a quick break um, for our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the right questions that companies should be asking if they want to turn things around. We'll be right back. Thanks. Are you a woman striving for leadership confidence, career clarity, and stress resilience? Sign up for the Leadership Spa's Smart Power Academy and get the knowledge that has helped thousands of women like you amplify their leadership power, define their career path, and find work-life harmony. You will join 30 extraordinary female leaders for a two-and-a-half-day women-only program. This program will provide proven insights and techniques to create innovation breakthroughs, improve strategic thinking, and live a happy life. Will Mare, the founder of the Leadership Spa, is on a mission to rapidly accelerate the influence of women leaders. The Leadership Spa is based on research and his own experience working with organizations such as Gap, Nike, and GE. The next Leadership Spa is February 3rd through the 5th in La Jolla, California. Visit the website at theleadershipspa.com to learn more and sign up. That's theleadershipspa.com. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net.
We are joined this afternoon by uh, both Dr. Beth Dupree. She's calling in from the hospital. I'm going to let you chime in in a moment because I know that you have some, um, you know, some of your own opinions on this topic. And we also have Will Murray, co-founder and former president of the Covey Leadership Center, founder of the Smart Power Institute, and a sought-after speaker and advisor to uh, major corporations. Uh, Will, welcome back. I wanted to um, – we had a great first half of the show, and, and there's so many topics I, I wanted to get to today. One of the important questions, I think, is to find out what companies who are looking to turn things around um, in this area, what kinds of questions should they be asking of both their uh, their own customers and clients and their employees? Well, I, I think the, the paradigm, it has to start with a shift of mindset. And leaders of large organizations have to understand that women are a competitive advantage. So the biggest problem in large organizations today is innovations that are really relevant and matter to people. So what you see today is that because of unrealistic investor expectations, they really drive hard power leadership to find ways to unrealistically drive earnings per share. And, and what it produces is a lot of negative innovation. So a, lot, a, a negative innovation is anything that you're doing that would cause a customer to pay more um, without any additional benefit or, or at all. So an example would be airline bag fees. Airlines derive over 90% of their profits today through fees charged to customers that they didn't use to charge, and airline bag fees are the biggest. And um, that's an example of a negative innovation. So only one airline doesn't charge airline bag fees, and it's the most profitable, Southwest Airlines. So the, the problem for big airlines isn't that they can't make money. The problem for big airlines is they, they don't know how to innovate their whole process, their internal processes to be efficient enough to make money um, and so forth. Another negative innovation, and we've, we've heard a lot about, is this dramatic rise in the cost of uh, pharmaceuticals and, and prescription drugs, where there's a the fellow who just got arrested. He there was a dr- drug um, that cost uh, thirteen fifty a pill, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he changed a twelve, I mean, it, to thousands and thousands of dollars, thirteen thousand dollars a pill. So obviously that's not an innovation. That's just a ripoff. So. What you see when you see companies, and most companies are this way, they're struggling. So you see VW. VW had a really negative innovation. They unleashed engineers to figure out how to, you know, lie to the EPA about how clean their diesels were. This is all an example of real hard power thinking. And the reason that the organizations run out of innovative ideas is because they have, um, the direct reason is that they have very low customer empathy. They also have very low employee empathy. So we have this crisis of employee engagement, and we have the commoditization of business. So the first thing I try to talk to when I talk to senior leaders, do you think it's possible that a woman's point of view, particularly driven by empathy, could create avenues of growth and employee performance that would give you a competitive advantage? So um, 
it's a new idea. You'd be surprised. Like people look at me like, hmm, I've never thought about that. So, and I've got plenty of examples because I've worked with um, women who who've been advanced into the C-suite, and they they've really revolutionized the business proposition of uh, large companies to reignite growth from positive innovation. So the reason to get women into leadership is because they, they're going to make a difference in your value proposition as a business. So it's really about really knowing your, your customers and your clients and what, you know, what is going to make them happy. What are they looking for? Um, right. And, and what happens is women tend to visualize a customer experiencing your product, you know, like a, like a movie in their head. Right where males will tend to want to look at things like a net promoter score or, or they'll, they'll want to look at the statistics on what people are saying about it. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that really reduces, when you reduce a customer to a concept from a human being, your ability to really innovate just dissipates. Right. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear... Um Beth, chime in on this. Uh, number one, you know, she is a senior leader. She's vice president of Holy Redeemer Health Systems. Um, and I know that something that Beth is doing on a regular basis is encouraging her own staff to be both uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally healthy, right? So I, I know that she's probably seen a difference in her employees and, and the staff at the hospital from her work. Uh, Beth, I wonder if you can chime in on this topic and, and tell me what you're thinking. I've just been, like, listening and uh, taking some notes because I, I watched some of your uh, YouTube videos, Will, and, um, I'm at, I, and Sue is correct. I'm, I'm VP of the health system. I oversee surgical services and integrative medicine and women's health, which is OB and Great. breast care. And I never, this is not a job I ever signed up for. This was not on my bucket list of things to do. I was very happy being a very busy and productive breast cancer surgeon running my practice and, uh, you know, took over as chief of surgery when somebody stepped down and they needed someone to fill in and go figure. Things started to improve because the morale improved with the staff. Mm -hmm. And um, now I uh, did that, you know, so lovely that now I get to be VP and oversee um, a different level of care. And what's been interesting is like all of the things that you're talking about, the contextual intelligence, the operational intelligence, um, I think one of the reasons why I am succeeding in this role and why there are so many other women VPs in our health system are because they lead with the same, you know, core, as I'm going to call them, your core intelligences. And mm-hmm. it, it is a very different way to that, that than I've been used to in healthcare. I, I've been in many other health um, organizations where women did not have key leadership roles, so the patient experience wasn't as important. The employee experience um, was not looked at. And I got to give my CEO Mike Lane credit because he is he's a incredible visionary, and he he's revamping the entire. Um, way our health system is perceived by really focusing on we we have it's called experience university we have a chief experience officer who happens to be a woman and what's been amazing is to see the you know the shifts in um, patients perspective in the family's perspective in how they're treated and what I really want to see is I want to see that boost in the employees I want the employees to love 
to want to come to work. I want them to come in in the morning with a smile on their face, um, engage knowing that what they're doing is impacting their patients' lives regardless of what they're having done, whether it's a hip or a breast cancer operation or whether they're coming in to deliver a baby. And so much of what you talk about in, you know, and I, you know, I'm just amazed that I'm talking to a gentleman on the phone who is such an advocate for women's leadership because it, you know, that's not, that's not the common thread. You know, a lot of men, you know, will eat their young to get ahead in the world. <laughs> um, so, so to be, to be talking to someone who not only understands this concept, but has kind of made this your mission um, to me is, you know, it, it's pretty impressive. And I, I want to know where, you know, what was that moment where the light bulb like got screwed in tightly into your head that you said, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to take this and run with it. Was there like some moment that, that changed your life in that you suddenly got the fact that there are different ways to lead and that you needed to do this for women? You know, there, there was actually, and it's been fairly recent. I've been fortunate in that I've worked with a lot, many women leaders. Uh, one who actually rose from uh, being an executive assistant. Um, she was a single mom at 19 and worked her way through college uh, as a receptionist, and she ended up being CEO of a uh, New York Stock Exchange company at the age of 40. And um, I, I also recently helped uh, a, a woman who um, just helped revolutionize the, the marketing of uh, cricket communications. They, they sell phones. You, they have ads on yes. TV all the time. It was recently sold to, to AT&T, and, and I was called in to help transform the culture so that the company was, was losing customers, and I was brought in. And soon after, I was... Uh, Julie Berg, who was the chief marketing officer, was brought in, and I, I helped her um, turn that company around. And she's a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about because the C chief operating officer of that company said, "Our problem is is that poor people make bad customers." And he was very assertive, by the way, and very strong. And, and a, a cell phone, a non-contract cell phone company like Cricket, really had lower economic uh, customer base. And her whole reason for coming to the company was that they had a low economic customer base, and there's all this proof that smartphones improve quality of opportunity and quality of life of people. But anyway, um, she had to become very persuasive. She was the only woman in a, a six-person executive leadership team. So um, I, I've been doing that, and Sheryl Sandberg's book came out, and she has a chapter. Uh, I, I should memorize the number of the chapter, but it's toward the end, and, and she's talking about uh, her child, uh, you know, hugging her leg, you know, a four-year-old or something of that nature. And uh, she had to, you know, go out and give a speech, and then she was getting on a plane to go back east and do all this lean-in stuff. And my my experience with helping women leaders use their um, their true core power to make a difference, and this book, the juxtaposition of that book just lit my brain on fire. And I don't know Sheryl Sandberg, and bless her heart, I know her heart's in the right place. But the message is like, I, I even say, do you realize that Sheryl Sandberg works for Mark Zuckerberg? And she enables Mark Zuckerberg to do all this cool stuff. But she still works for a man. It's not, that's not the way we need to go. We need to change the game that we're 
were playing. So that was the the sort of when my light went on. It's just it's just interesting because um, Sue knows one of our guests uh, several weeks ago is the general manager of Medtronic Advanced Energy, Suzanne Foster. And Suzanne um, works for, it's a small division, it's 400 employees out of 85,000, but um, she has a very strong relationship with the gentleman, Earl Bakken, who actually started the company um, years ago. And Earl is now in his 90s, and one of his prime directives besides, you know, furthering um, integrative medicine and integrative care, which you would think the guy that invented the pacemaker, you know, that he'd be all into electronics, but his other main focus is women leadership and really helping to foster um, that education and that, and that um, process so that we get more women leaders because he feels that he feels that women leaders are the answer to most of the world's issues right now and that if we continue to just do it the way we've always done it, um, that we're missing this amazing opportunity to kind of unleash the the energy and the passion and the purpose of women onto these issues. Well, I don't think there's any question that women are the civilizing force in the world. The, as you know, um, years ago I, I did some work with uh, the Grameen Foundation, uh, microcredit, and as you as you know, microcredit is giving. Uh, usually village people, so to speak, um, a few hundred dollars or a hundred dollars or forty dollars to start a, a a small business in a in a place like Bangladesh or Africa or wherever that um, that doesn't really have opportunity. And Grameen Bank and the, all the other microfinance organizations almost um, only uh, borrow, give money, loan money to women. And it was because that women pay it back. And, and their secret was is they'd bring women together in groups of eight to help do peer coaching. And, and they didn't get, by the way, these women never get any training in how to run a business or they just use their common sense. But what women would do when they made money is they would reinvest in their business. They would invest in the school uniforms or books their kids needed to get to school. Um, and, and they would invest in some sort of community benefit, like let's get clean water into our village. And men invariably, I, I know it sounds stereotypically, would often use the loan proceeds for gambling or liquor or prostitutes. And, and I know that's, um, that's stereotypical, but it, it was the exact experience. And it is the exact experience. And, and women, um, and I would just say this, the neurology, the, the, the study of neuroscience in the different ways that men and women use the brain. I mean, our brains are actually, they're the same equipment. It's just that the switches in, in women's brains that are turned on are different than most uh, of the switches that are turned on in men's brains. So um, the, the, what, what your colleague says is what I believe. I believe we've created the best of all possible worlds that men can create. And it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. We have to create a, a world of sustainable abundance that seven to nine billion people can live a decent life in. And we're not going to get there by doing it the way we've been doing it. We need something different. And I believe that women bring that difference. And I, and I just want to say, I, I do believe, I teach in organizations this concept of gender synergy. It's not that I think that 
men are worthless. I think men, I, I think the drive of men, I think the competitiveness of men, I think uh, the focus uh, of men, I think there's a lot of things that they can bring when it's combined with um, the power of women. And that's what I call smart power. It's a synthesis of the hard power of men and the soft power of women coming together that will will save the world. We agree. I, I love, we agree. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I think, Susan, we had a guest on recently who talked about how much more productive um, – committees were or organizations were when they had a good mix of women and men that collaborated on each project. Right. That if they, that if you take all men in one group and all women in the other group, um, they don't get nearly as much accomplished as when you have a good mix of, of men and women because they're, you know, they're sharing their wealth and, and, you know, getting stuff done. Right. Diversity of, of thought, you know, diversity of thought is always better. Um, well, here's a question for you. You know, you've been doing this, as you mentioned, for many, many years. And I, you know, looking ahead, we have a brand new year. I always love, you know, when it's a new year and you look ahead and you think, what, how do I want this year to be better, different? Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you, are you seeing, now that these conversations are being had, which they were not years ago, so there's this awareness and you're certainly at the forefront of that, are you seeing positive changes? Are you seeing men receptive to um, wanting to change this leadership um, model? And what would you like to see different in 2016 with regard to, you know, societal changes? What, what are you hoping to see now after all of these years of work? You know, I, I would say this. I, I, don't, I don't really think we've reached the right mindset. What I see in organizations and when I, you know, I end up talking to a lot of people who are involved in diversity and inclusion, and it's still mostly perceived as the right thing to do or a must-to-do for social reasons or corporate uh, social responsibility. Right. In, until leaders, boards of directors, Wall Street, the, the whole group, uh, understand that women are a competitive advantage. Women will make things work better, will, will make more money doing better things that improve the quality of life for customers and everybody that that we want, that it, this isn't tokenism. This isn't about doing the right thing. This isn't, um, you know, well, they're really not tough as men. And uh, the, the When you survey, which many executives are surveyed all the time and what they think are the attributes of a great leader, and their common responses have nothing to do with the research on what makes a great leader. So they do say things like decisiveness and competitiveness and toughness and all that. And there's, when you do factor analysis, those factors don't, don't um, connect to great leadership because there's a lot of people with those characteristics that are terrible leaders. They're just jerks. So um, what, what you find out that in today's world, the things that create great leadership are people with high core intelligence and something MIT calls thinking versatility and a drive for what's called universal inclusion. So when I train men leaders on how to be, lead women better, the thing I say is just do what your mother told you you should do, which is this. Ask first. <laughs> then acknowledge what's said. So I say, leader, don't go into any meeting and do anything other than frame what the meeting's about. 
but don't offer your opinion. And the first person you should ask in a meeting their opinion is a woman. So you legitimize that you want to hear the voice of a woman. Mm. And, and second, acknowledge what she says and then ask for comments about what she says. Because the common experience that women have in meetings is they'll chime in and um, nobody will say a word about it. So this woman, they'll wait 15, 20 minutes and then finally, oh, okay, I'm going to say something. They say something. She'll say something. Nobody comments on it. And then Two minutes later, Charlie rephrases what the woman said, and the leader will look at it and say, Charlie, Charlie's got something here. Great idea. It, it, just, it just takes all the air out of the room if you're a woman. Right. And that is what's going on today. That's what's going to go on next week, and it's going to go on next year until men realize that we don't want women to act like men. Because when women lead like women, they make men better leaders, which I think is best point. That, that's the deal that women make men better leaders. Oh, I love but that. You've got you've yeah. to create a culture that promotes that. That's right. That's right. I agree. Great advice. You know what? Well, we, we've come to the end of the show, and we are so happy to have you um, in, on our court. You know, uh, we're doing what we can here with Women to Watch, and Beth's doing her great work. And um, we're so thrilled to have you on the show today to share what you're doing and just terrific advice. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. To, obviously, I like talking about this. Thanks for having me. I know. Take care. I, thanks, Will. Happy New Year. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Please tune in again next week and have a good uh, first of the year.